This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we are incredibly fortunate. We're in Boulder, Colorado. We have Trish Groom on the show. She was the owner of a coffee shop called Sydney's here in town. She's the co-founder of Splicket. Trish, thanks so much for taking time out of your day. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pedaled down here on your bike in your cowgirl boots. <laughs> I did. I was in a rush. <laughs> <laughs> I just had this mental image. You see the typical bicycler, right, with all the fancy shoes on and the outfits. And we have Trish coming down in her cowgirl boots. Yes. Move out of the way. Get out of the way. <laughs> well, Trish, if you would, and folks, we're going to probably go off the rail a little bit here and there because Trish has a significant problem. She's a serial entrepreneur. She's owned more than one business. She's involved in many different things in the business community and so on. So first off, Trish in Splicket, if you would, tell me about your role and who does Splicket serve? Mm -hmm. Splicket, I was co-founder and business development, and we built a online pre-order prepay app and web for businesses, for restaurants specifically. We target more franchise companies somewhere the sweet spot for us is franchises that have between 500 and 1,200 locations. So we white label for them, provide the service, manage the back end, and the customer experience for them. So because I'm not a restaurant person, and I, let's say I'm the franchise owner, what improvement or what change should I expect to see by using Splicket? So really, a lot of... Restaurants lose revenue because they lose people at the end of their line. They can't wait. So in the early stages, we were one of the first to come up with this idea where we were taking your pre-order and prepayment and putting it on an app. So that way you can still, as an owner, get that revenue in the door and the customer can still get served quickly like they need to be. So that's the sticky factor on the long line. Yeah. All right. And for the app, is it an app that the customer has to have or is an employee come from the restaurant to come with the app? Right. So we do the marketing. We help the franchise market the app to the customer. They download it, create an account. So we have a credit card on file. So it's very easy for them to order and pay. And so the consumer won't know that it's split because it'll be private labeled for the various right. franchises. Right. How long has that company been around? We started in 2000. Nine, really. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's an auspicious time. Yeah. <laughs> Rough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of uh, early stage uh, friends and family rounds. It's funny, you know, I think about it, and you and I have talked on the phone, and we were chatting before the episode about all the stuff that you do and all the things that you've done. And what folks don't realize is you didn't come from a business background. Right. And so your first foray in Boulder was to, you tell the story, you bought a coffee? I did buy a coffee shop. What I didn't realize is that I had never drank a cup of coffee in my life, and I thought that was a good idea. But I didn't realize that was unusual at the time. And Do you um, drink coffee now? I do. Okay. <laughs> I learned a lot. But I was traveling in South America for a year, and had this idea that I wanted to own a coffee shop and not because I love coffee, but because I thought that there was some community aspect to it that was really intriguing. Came home from South America and I had no money, no business owning a coffee shop. I had no experience whatsoever. So I was teaching at the time, but I ended up in a Telluride during the summer 
at a Telluride Bluegrass Festival. And maybe my parents don't think, probably don't want to know this part, but I drink a lot of beers and ended up buying a coffee shop from a couple there that I had met and ran into. And two weeks later, I, you know, the universe conspires sometimes. And next thing I know, I bought a coffee shop. Thinking about some of the decisions that business owners make. (laughs) So do you remember the thought process or moment when you decided, I'm going to do this? Do you remember what that was like? I think the benefit I had Sometimes ignorance is bliss, but I always, and I grew up with this, was willing to bet on myself. I'd always take a chance on me. And I think that was my moment in time. I didn't know. I had no idea how to run any business, but I was like, I'm going to do it because I believe in me and I will bet on me first. So I take that leap of faith any day. And that's how I kind of went into any business. But yeah, that was the first moment. I was like, I'm going to do this. I think about that. And For the parents that are listening, and we want to instill that same type of Mm self-confidence. What do you think your parents contributed toward that? And if so, what did they do? Yeah, I was super active in sports, so I think that helped. But I think the self-confidence came from my parents encouraging me to be better than everybody else on the field. So not that I had to be the best shooter, because I never was, or the best dribbler, but I was the best hustler. And they wanted me to be the best hustler. They wanted me to, if you're going to run a race, do everything you can to win, because to get to the front, be at the front. I was always encouraged to be the captain. I was never the best player, but I was encouraged to be the captain of the team. So those skills kind of built the confidence of like, well, if nobody else is going to do it, I can do it. I'm going to step up and do it because I believe I can do it. And I was pushed to believe that. Supported. Supported, right? Supported to believe Yeah, because there's both sides of that leadership gig. When things go well, it's pretty easy. Yeah, right. Right, exactly. And you were mentioning before the episode as well that you have two sisters, uh-huh. right? And your dad had a particular skill set that he passed on to you guys. Right. <laughs> Right. He he was a wrestler. He was a wrestler and he was multiple times many, the best wrestler in the country. He's in the National Hall of Fame and he's won national championships and he had three girls. And so you guys got trained. We got trained, heavily trained. <laughs> and we were chatting about that a little bit. And I said, so do you still wrestle your sisters? And the answer is yes. yes. <laughs> they don't want to admit that, but yes. <laughs> So what's your favorite hold? What's your favorite move? Well, we were trained on the famous head chuck. That was what he was known for. So we know that skill very well. Single leg, double legs. We were trained that if someone comes up behind us with a gun, what do we do? Mm -hmm. How do we handle it? Mm -hmm. So it's helped a lot. And in college, I ended up playing rugby and I played rugby for many years. And so it was just a lot of those same skill sets went right in there. And you know, I'm looking at, I don't see any stitch line ac- across your forehead well, playing rugby or anything. <laughs> that's a compliment in the yes, rugby ma'am. world. <laughs> yes, it is. I, yeah, I haven't seen your knees yet. But yeah, you know. right. Yeah. But yeah. So I think sports have helped me a lot to become a first generation business entrepreneur. But you don't know what you don't know in the business world as well. 
Yeah, tuition's expensive typically in the business world. Yeah, yeah, very. So, you know, circling back, when you went down to South America and came back, what do you think the chief lessons coming out of that time in South America were? I traveled with my cousin, and going down to South America as two young women is pretty dangerous. So we had to come up with some ways to stay safe, and one of them was we shaved our heads. And the night before we got on the plane, to kind of present ourselves as like, we're this crazy, you don't want to mess with us. And I think that helped. But being in those countries for that long, there's a sense of vulnerability and rawness that you have to kind of be prepared to expose yourself to. And through rawness starts to come some self-realizations and truths that I think were impeccable for me to go through in order to achieve some level of success in my life and truths about myself and truths about who I am and where I want to go in life and what does that look like and mean. Well, it certainly gives you an idea of, of what less than good looks like. Yeah, right. Yeah. And <laughs> circling back to the coffee shop. And so week one in the coffee shop, you know, thinking back to the thought process and the learning curve, mm -hmm. you had some interesting ways of getting tutoring when required. Let's yeah. talk about this yeah. a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, I had to get creative really quick. And I guess being resourceful is something I have, I'm very good at. I might have learned that from my dad because we're not the smartest crew out there. That's for sure. But we figure out who the smart people are. <laughs> but there's a couple things that happen in the coffee shop that I think I didn't really know at the time was going to be super helpful. And the first one was that coffee shop was built on personality. And so I had asked the original owners to stay on for a year with me because it was built on their personality. And I had to get the customers to start trusting me and my personality. And so there was this transition period that it had taken for me to establish the coffee shop on my own. But through that trust, I was able to ask my customers for things that I didn't know how to do. And they were willing. And I traded coffee mm -hmm. for it that I didn't know how to do and kind of be in that vulnerable state because they're my customers. I won't. But they also wanted to help me because we built this relationship. So I had no idea how to do accounting. So I traded coffee for accounting. I didn't know how to do marketing. So I traded that. I didn't know how to branding. So I traded that. Think about it. I probably traded more coffee than money that came in. <laughs> that cost of tuition going in. But I also traded coffee for programmers to help me with that first beta on Splicket and building that first beta and seeing if it actually would work. The idea that I had solving for my own problem of losing customers at the end of my line. Interesting to address a pain point. Yeah. And you see it in the restaurant business, you know, frequently is, you know, how do you turn a table? How do you get the customer through? Right. Can you turn the tables enough? Yeah. It's right. A, the ongoing challenge. Mm -hmm. Most people look at that and go, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. And so the difference for you is you weren't willing to take, there's nothing I can do. Right. Yeah. And that getting resourceful really quick. And I had 
really amazing customers as well. I mean, I had the founder of Celestial Season coming into my coffee shop every day. So I had this opportunity to tell me, what do I need to do? That's how I learned about the E-Myth book Mm -hmm. and read that and had a complete panic attack because I'm like, ah. Did you find that there was resistance for people saying, can you help me? Do you find much resistance in people helping you when you ask? No, but I think maybe through sports, I learned the skill of being coachable. And that has played out really significant in my life. And I think coming to the table in a demeanor of I'm coachable, I'm willing to listen, I'm willing to learn opens the doors quite a bit for me and has carried me really far. So I didn't have any resistance there, but I also think there had to be a lot with our relationship. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting fact. And you think about the best professional athletes, they have a multitude of coaches. Right. You know, you think about the professional golfers, they have a multitude of coaches and you'll see somebody with talent that's not coached and you kind of go, well, why aren't they doing it? Because they clearly have the physical skills. Yeah. Right. And being able to listen. Yeah. Lost art. Yeah, it is a lost art. <laughs> and so, you know, thinking about that, so there's the germination of the idea for Split It mm-hmm. and the coffee shop. And then you sold the coffee shop at some point. Mm-hmm. Yep. I sold it after owning about four years. Yeah. Just a little more than four years. For the folks that have a business looking after the sale, mm-hmm. what advice or takeaways did you learn after uh, post-sale? I just felt like I could fly. I felt so... I didn't realize the amount of stress and pressure that I had on myself to succeed and just, I sold it. I signed all the papers on a Friday at four o'clock and our coffee shop was luckily closed on the weekends. And so Monday morning when I got up at 4.30 a.m., I just felt relief and just like, oh, I don't have to hold the burden anymore. And that is a very beautiful feeling. It's addictive feeling, though, you know, because you go back into entrepreneurship because you want the thrill of it all. But you certainly want the sell, too, because you want to be relieved of like, oh, got it. We talked about this some, and, you know, about, you know, how do you exit properly? Yeah. And, you know, when you think about the lessons learned on a previous exit, those thoughts, how did that shape your approach to Splicket after having sold the coffee shop. Did it change how you approach that company? I think that I can't say I had the intuition that a lot of those skill sets should transfer because I went from coffee to tech. And I didn't believe that, well, this, I've done this before because it felt so different. Building a tech company is just so different. And so looking back, Almost everything transferred. (laughs) I just didn't think that it, Mm -hmm. at the time. I think business is business. You hear that a lot. Yeah, right. And, you know, and and there's a lot of factors in business. You could be selling trucks or you could be doing tech or you could be doing something else. And at the end of the day, you have a customer somewhere. Right. You got to take care of the customer. Yeah. You know, and relationships and and the whole bit. Yeah. You know, and deliverable of some kind. Yes, right. 
And so right. you're now in the throes of potentially exiting Splicket. Yes. And that's the goal, and to get acquired there. And there's a lot of activity in the space, so I think that we're going to see something. It's just a matter of when and at a valuation that we really love. <laughs> it's an interesting challenge to go through that exit halfway. You're doing it twice now. Yeah. But before I get into the second part of the show, you were talking about some of the things that you're doing in the community and in the community with women about business. Let's dig into that. Yeah. I think, I feel like my life is full of a lot of aha moments and becoming a woman investor is one of those. It's kind of like, I didn't know as a kid I could be CEO. That conversation never happened. And this is also one of those things I learned later on in life that women can be investors. And when that light switch went on for me, it was game changing. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to get involved. I got to do this. I have to be part of this solution. And I just, nobody ever told me before that yeah, I could be an know, investor. I'm a huge fan of the thought process. So somewhere, you know, when you had that aha moment, yeah. do you remember what that felt like or what you were thinking at the time? Yeah, I, I remember exactly. I was actually across the street <laughs> from here, but I was at a luncheon and this was um, a woman pitching. Actually, she was raising a fund and I was invited to the luncheon and her speech wasn't the thing that caught my attention. It was somebody else in the crowd who stood up and said, I am starting a woman-only fund. You, anyone in this woman can be in this crowd, could be an investor. And I'm going to show you how to do it. You'd be part of my fund. And it's learning by doing. And uh, we're going to go build a fund and we're going to bring in companies and we're going to teach you how to be an investor and you can do it. And I was like, oh my God, what? I mean, it's just mind-blowing those words. And I went to her right afterwards. I'm like, count me in. I'm in. Whatever it takes. And I think that I still, whatever that intuition was, I learned the details later of why it was important to be an investor, that other women step up and be investors. I think about that just as it's kind of a lightning rod. you know. And I think about you were a business owner already. You'd sold a business, started yeah. another one, and you're at this meeting to get the notion <laughs> that you can be an investor. And, you know, and, and you know, the next thought is, as an investor in this group of women, what's been the follow-on or knock-on effect of you being associated with the women in the investing community? Yeah, what I have been exposed to is this network of amazing women and what has been a struggle being a female growing up is not enough role models, especially being a, an aggressive young girl. I had muscles, but I never saw a girl on a magazine with muscles. I didn't see a girl on a magazine with muscles until Athleta came out and that store. So I felt alone on much of my path and then being exposed to all these women who are just everything I've wanted to be in life or as an entrepreneur or as a business person. 
I've now have access to. I have examples. I have someone to talk to. I have the ability to get advice from. And that has just been invaluable for me, especially at this stage of where I want to go. I think about that. And of course, you know, I talk about it. I, my daughter's out in the space and in the business community and so on. Yeah. And I've been a business owner for a very long time. You know, yeah. and, and as when I was growing up, that was not my, no one in my family had owned a business. Right. Nobody in my family had been to college. Uh, uh-huh. And so you think about that key yeah. differential. So if you were to start another business after split, which I can't imagine that you're not, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if that's that other part of the IQ problem, you know, yeah, I want to do another one. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you think about it. So given your experience from these two businesses and in, in the community of women investors, how do you think you would approach the, the next business differently or would you? I would because I've seen enough pitches now. I know it's good idea and what's a bad idea or how to even sell an idea. But also a lot of the conversations I've had with entrepreneurs, and this is why I was intrigued with our conversation earlier, was that I don't want a list of your exit strategies. Don't tell me who could potentially buy. What is it? What's the plan? Who are you already having conversations with? So to start the next businesses, I don't want to start with just the idea. I also want to start talking to the potential exiters because I want to start that business with what they need in mind. And how can I fulfill what their gaps are or their weaknesses are with a business I'm going to build? If you had um, your young children boy and girl, let's say, and you, yeah, yeah, and you were going to take and, and offer advice to the listeners that have young children and they go, she sounds really cool. We want our kids to be like her. Mm -hmm. What advice would you offer those folks? What I will probably do is I would love to take my son to demo days. You know, there's a lot of accelerators that have demo days. Because it exposes them to people who have ideas, exposes them to people being brave enough to step in front of a group of people and share their idea, but also that they really could be anything. And just, I was exposed to, you can be a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor. It's not until my adult years that I've learned of all these possibilities that I would have probably went after if I knew about them. But I didn't, so I had to take my own path. Yeah, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, so populating the thought process is really an interesting thing. Right. Yeah, and, and I see that. My kids are now in late twenties, early thirties. And you know, you look at things that you know, the mistakes that you get to make that your kids will remind you about later. <laughs> where you thought you were underfoot the whole time. Right. And I've always advocated for them to do business. Yeah. But we'll see how that pans out over the years. <laughs> so Shifting gears a little bit, the part of the episode where we talk about things that are influential and so on. So for you, recent book that's been influential on your thought process. Yeah, I'm currently reading Predictable Revenue. And being in biz dev, I love the new perspective that they have on lead generation and closing deals. And I think there's a lot of good little nuggets in there. It's funny, we get stimulated by other people's, you know, cross-pollinate, for lack of a better term. You go, wow, never thought of it that way. Yeah, right. Yeah, useful. Right. For you, looking back over 
your career to date, maybe a failure or, or something that was not quite so successful that served you further down the road and helped you be successful like you are now? Mm-hmm. Now, failure is a good thing, right? Actually, investors want you to fail multiple times before they invest in you. <laughs> so not being afraid to fail, but the times that I didn't believe in myself, it wasn't just a failure. It was a failure to me. And I think that that's where the doubt came in. And, and I let somebody else believe they knew more than me. And not in the fact that there's a lot of smarter people and I listen but it was more of that my thoughts and opinions didn't matter. And I allowed that to happen. And those were the worst of the times. And then I would look back and be like, God, I had the idea the whole damn time. But I allowed them to not let me speak up or didn't allow them to make me believe that my idea wasn't good. That's probably my biggest thing that I had to overcome. And so now, what's your alternative to allowing that to occur? Well, it's, I had to identify those types of people. Yes. And it's learning who they are and keeping them at very long, long distances. So I, I'm much more intentional of who I bring around. And what that circle looks like. It's that old average. You're the average of the five people you hang out with. Yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> <laughs> like I tell folks, I'm either lowering theirs or they're raising mine. <laughs> one of the two. Exactly. Thinking about your message, if you could take an ad on the front page of the local paper, what would your message be? Well, because it's uh, front of mind for me right now is that really that you can be an investor. I'm really speaking to women right now, but you can be an investor. And we are trying to figure out ways to make that possible for you. When you say be the investor, all right, there's kind of like the comma, which means. So by being an investor, what does that allow you to be or do? It allows you to be part of the solution. Women are amazing philanthropists. And we have to have that as part of the solution. But what we don't have is enough women coming to the table, making the decisions of who should be granted a business or not. And so we see that the entrepreneurs that are getting the money are still the white males. And so the females aren't getting recognized with the good ideas and the minorities aren't getting recognized with the good ideas because most people want to invest with who they look like or what like attracts like. So without bringing in the investments, we aren't going to see the women we need to see in the business world or the minorities we need to see solving major world problems. It's a matter of perspective. I mean, you know, I see things the way I see based on my cumulative experience. Yeah. You see things the way you see things based on your cumulative experience. It's not that one's better than the other. They're different right. and they have value in that you go, well, I've seen that movie before. And you go, well, I haven't seen that movie before. <laughs> right. You think about right. being in South America and how that changes how you think even now. Yeah. I mean, not a small thing to go down with two women and bounce around South America for a year. Right. Yeah. The good news right. is you're back. Right. <laughs> we survived. Yeah. <laughs> Looking at allocation of resources, what's the best allocation of either time or initiative that's helped you the most? Most in, in what way? 
business or personal, either way. Mm-hmm. I have been doing a lot of mentor and advisory roles. And what I think is important is that as busy as we are in our lives, it's still just as important to show up for younger generations, especially women, because they need those role models, but also I'm mentoring young men. And it's important that they see women know a lot about this world. And since we are half of the population, it's important that they understand our perspective and our roles and what we can bring to the table. I oftentimes think about the discourse between what women think and what men think, right? Yeah. And I think, yes, sometimes there's an extraordinary difference. But I think, you know, we all want the best that we can for our families. Mm-hmm. You know, we all want to take and live a life of significance. And you think about that and you kind of go, it's important to hear that message from guys aren't that communicative. Yeah. And so it's important for both the boys and the girls to hear that message. Yeah. And maybe it resonates better at certain ages from one gender versus the other. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, over the past few years, what belief or protocol have you put in place that's helped you and your business efforts the most? What I have found to be the most successful is the king or queen of the room is not the CEO. It's the idea. And everyone serves the idea. And each one has a different role into how we serve the idea, but the execution has to be like, this is the idea. And it's not the person that, um, that we're serving. And that really sets the tone of the objectives of that company or that phase of the company. And because the objectives is not about a team or a person, it's the execution of that idea. And those objectives change. And so really defining as the CEO, what are those objectives? And then how do we align structure and finances, information and meetings around those objectives that serve the idea? You're connecting everybody on the team to the idea. Right. Not a simple thing. It's not simple. (laughs) Not a simple thing. So for, you know, if you were going to offer advice to a new business owner or CEO that was taking that role for the first time, Mm -hmm. what advice might you offer? I think it's, and I think this is culturally that the CEO is supposed to have all the answers and they're supposed to be the smartest person in the room and they're supposed to lead this team naturally and seamlessly. And as we know, it doesn't really work out that way, but it's also coming into the role being okay with that and setting yourself up to where the reason why you have a team is to find the smartest people and then enable them to solve those problems and not feeling like you have to do it. I've seen so many times where someone's hired an expert, but never allows them to execute on their knowledge. And that's just an ego thing, in my opinion. But, well, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the day-to-day operations when you're in a company, right, and there may be a habit that you have that really helps move the company forward, what would be that habit or belief or self-talk that keeps you going and keeps the company pointed in the right direction? Mm-hmm. Well, 
I'm a very competitive spirit, and that has served me well in the business world, but not so well in my marriage. And uh, I've had to learn how to turn that competitive spirit on and off or dial it in and out. But being that team player, I want to win. And I want my team to win. Mm -hmm. And so if I know there's a win, whatever that goal is or multiple goals, that's what I do. I motivate the team to win mm -hmm. the game. And so that in itself energizes me. And that's kind of the self-talk. We talked about this a little bit before. You're a very strong personality. Yeah. You're accomplished. And you're female. Right. <laughs> Not that atypical nowadays. But you look at the generation of men that didn't grow up around that. What advice would you offer to a male counterpart when they're working with a strong female lead or personality? Yeah, I like to say it shouldn't be any different than a male. But what I have found is there's some insecurities that come mm -hmm. with that. And women who are on this forefront of elevating all women are not trying to swing the pendulum from this patriarchal world all the way to the other side. We are trying to get the pendulum just back to the middle. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the fear factor that men come often with that insecurity of like, oh man, remember us when you're up top, right? And we laugh at that because we're like, we're not here to take over the world. We're here to bring it back to center and balance. And so the strong women who are those champions who are working on it are not being aggressive to be aggressive. We're just trying to sit in our power and be comfortable with that power. We're also learning how to be comfortable with that power. <laughs> so the unintended consequences, yeah, right? Yeah. Just work with us. <laughs> I'm having a moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, for you, how do folks reach out to you in social media? How do they find you? I'm on Twitter at Trish Groom and Instagram, but I use Twitter probably more of like the business facing and Instagram is more of my family realm. And we can find you on LinkedIn. Oh, LinkedIn. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the ultimate. The ultimate. The, the business link, right? Right. This is the last quiz for you. If I was to talk to your colleagues and say, what are you best at or what's your superpower? What would they say? And how do you use that? I think what I am very good at is reading people. I can get very detailed on people, meaning their demeanor, their body language, the fluctuation of their voice, the way they shift, where they pay attention to. I'm taking in all that information and then quickly adjusting how I approach them. And it could be from word to word, conversation, to conversation. And so because I'm capable of doing that, I'm able to build relationships really quickly and I build a lot of trust because I can read people super fast. That helps on in business development in that space, but whether they know it or not, I'm doing it to them too. <laughs> What I'm thinking about is you as a young girl with your sister and your dad's teaching you guys wrestling and you're watching them. <laughs> yeah. Well, you do get to advantage. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Know what they know and don't know quickly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Trish, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time today. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me and thanks for doing this. Oh, yeah. This has been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Yes. Thanks. Thanks.